You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Are voting machines too connected for comfort? Airliner firmware security is in dispute. Attribution, deterrence, and the problem of an adversary who doesn't have much to lose. Monitoring social media for signs of violent extremism, Broadcom will buy Symantec's enterprise business for $10.7 billion. Amazon's ring and the police, a CISA update on VXWorks vulnerabilities, and human second-guessing of AI present some surprising privacy issues. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August 9th, 2019. Vice reports that contrary to various government assurances, voting machines in the U.S. made by election systems and software have in fact sometimes been connected to the Internet. County election officials who desire faster tabulation and reporting of votes establish wireless connections to SFTP servers behind a Cisco firewall. These connect with back-end systems that actually count the votes. Typically, votes are recorded on a memory card and physically delivered to a tallying location, but in some areas and under some circumstances, the machines are configured to report remotely. Vice says that such connections are intended to be brief, matters of a few minutes, but Vice's investigation concluded that in some cases the systems remained connected for months. Thus, voting may be less air-gapped than many officials had imagined. The possibility of direct manipulation of votes, of course, is a more serious matter than the influence operations Russian intelligence services have conducted during recent elections. Both Boeing and the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration dispute claims made this week by IOActive that the 787 Dreamliner's firmware is vulnerable to cyber attacks on flight systems. The aircraft manufacturer told PCMag that IOActive did not have full access to the 787 systems and that Boeing's extensive testing confirmed that existing defenses in the broader 787 network prevent the scenarios claimed. The FAA says it's satisfied with the assessment of the issue. IOActive, which presented its research at Black Hat this week, did not claim to have a proof of concept, still less that they had found any actual exploitation in the wild. But they do think there's a possibility that an attacker could pivot from in-flight entertainment systems to flight control avionics. It's important to note that this is not the same vulnerability CISA warned against last week. That warning concerned the CAN bus in small general aviation aircraft. The Dreamliner is a different kettle of fish. Elsewhere at Black Hat, Miko Hyponen, chief research officer of F-Secure, shared some thoughts on the distinctive features of cyberwar. His observations, as reported by Fifth Domain, are worth some reflection. 
What distinguishes cyberwar from kinetic war is, he thinks, the fundamentally difficult nature of attribution in cyberspace. Hipponen said, quote, Cyber weapons are cheap, effective, and they are deniable. False flag operations are common, and attribution is usually hedged about with reservations. There may even be doubt as to whether a cyber attack has even taken place. Consider, a missile launch is an unambiguous event, and the ones our fire support desk has witnessed cannot be mistaken for anything other than what they are. Nor is it that difficult to tell where the missile came from. But with a cyber attack, it can be unclear whether an attack has even taken place. And even after you've determined that there has been an attack, attribution can be difficult. In most cases, the best companies in the threat intelligence business can do is present convincing circumstantial evidence. That's fine for cyber threat intelligence, but it's problematic when a responsible government is considering going to war. This problem is closely linked to another, the difficulty of establishing deterrence in cyberspace. For deterrence to work, the adversaries must have some relatively realistic appreciation of what the opposition can do, what its capabilities are. That's one reason for the Cold War traditions of military parades in Red Square or news footage of tests on the Pacific Missile Range. Cyber capabilities are inherently more difficult to assess. You may not even know that a particular kind of attack is possible, let alone that the opposition is capable of delivering it. We have no idea what offensive capabilities other nations have, Hyponen said. So what kind of deterrence do these tools build? Nothing. We note, as Dr. Strangelove put it back in the heyday of nuclear deterrence, deterrence is the art of producing fear in the mind of the enemy, but the whole point of the doomsday machine is lost if you keep it a secret. Turning to specific nation-states, Hyponen singled out North Korea for particular mention in dispatches, making all due allowance for the difficulties of attribution mentioned above. Pyongyang does things no other government attempts, like engaging in hacking for financial gain. Part of what explains North Korea's high level of activity and relative recklessness, Hyponen argues, is that the country has very little to lose, and that makes it a different kind of threat actor. With calls for increased attention to evidence of threats in social media, the FBI has issued a request for proposals that asks contractors to propose tools that could effectively monitor Facebook and other social media for signs of impending criminal or terrorist violence. Facebook, the Wall Street Journal says, isn't entirely happy with the idea. It has been under fire for the way it handled personal data, and Menlo Park has been on the defensive over privacy for a long time. The last thing Facebook needs is this sort of help from the feds. But with the White House convening a social media summit to come up with ways of controlling violent extremism online, the Bureau is likely to continue leaning forward in the foxhole. Some significant industry news has broken. Broadcom will acquire Symantec's enterprise security unit, including, CRN says, the Symantec brand, for $10.7 billion in cash. Seeking Alpha calls this Broadcom's next move in its bid to become a major infrastructure technology provider. Symantec will retain its consumer-facing Norton LifeLock business. NBC News has a story out on the ways in which Amazon's products are being used by police departments in the U.S., most of the discussion surrounds the company's smart doorbell, Ring, which in addition to the ringing keeps an eye out for the ringer. Data captured by Ring has been fed to police departments and have arguably helped them solve burglaries. Most would regard this as a good thing, but the implications of creating an American panopticon from the bottom up trouble some observers. 
This is especially so at the points where familiar technologies intersect with unproven innovations. Ring's networked video security cameras are increasingly used in conjunction with controversial and possibly error-prone facial recognition software. One critic, University of the District of Columbia law professor Andrew Ferguson, put the objections this way to NBC News, quote, I am not sure Amazon has quite grappled with how their innovative technologies intersect with issues of privacy, liberty, and government police power. The pushback they are getting comes from a failure to recognize that there is a fundamental difference between empowering the consumer with information and empowering the government with information. The former enhances an individual's freedom of choice. The latter limits an individual's freedom and choice. Quote. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's CISA has issued an updated warning about vulnerabilities in Wind River's VXWorks, the widely used industrial IoT software. CISA says that 11 vulnerabilities could be exploited to allow remote code execution and that the level of skill such exploitation would require is relatively low. Wind River is addressing the problems in VXWorks, and users are encouraged to apply the patches and mitigations the company is offering. And finally, Microsoft's use of humans to perform quality control on some of its services has received the same sort of scrutiny Google, Apple, and Amazon have attracted. Microsoft's Skype service and Cortana Digital Assistant are listened in on from time to time, but Microsoft says its contractors listen to Skype calls and user interactions with Cortana only after receiving user permission. I can hear you. Excellent. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Business. 
And continuing our coverage of Black Hat, joining us is Justin Harvey. He is the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Uh, Justin is joining us from the show floor at Black Hat, where he has a very spotty uh, phone connection. So uh, we apologize in advance for the uh, audio quality of our connection. But uh, Justin, what are you seeing there? What is the overall tone that you're sensing on the show floor itself? Well, the tone is all about visibility detection and response. And years previous, we've seen different point solutions being deployed, but this year the theme is all about shining lights under the rock in order to find the adversaries. And so how does that express itself? What, what sorts of things are people out there talking about and offering? The various solutions that we're seeing out here that are focusing on visibility is applying it to endpoints, applying it to your networks, and applying it to your identities. And it seems like all of these vendors are using the P word, Dave. They're all talking about platforms. What can they do to increase visibility and integrate with other solutions? I think that uh, those of us in the industry have been saying for many years that there is going to be an investment bubble, that we, we, we walk in the door and we expect Black Hat to be smaller than it was last year. But this is 19,000 people are attending Black Hat this year from over 110 countries, and this is their 23rd year. And I have to tell you that there is no slowing down in the market. It is very hot. People are very excited. And in fact, one of the net new things that I'm seeing is a focus on training, a focus on career management, particularly being inclusive and diverse in the workforce. And how is that expressing itself? I mean, are you seeing more diversity out there on the show floor? Is there more representation of of different types of folks out there? Definitely a a representation of a a larger swath of diverse uh, attendees. But we're also seeing it in some of the booths here. Uh, There is a big focus on women and there is a big focus on diversity. So what can uh, these companies do to attract top talent? and enhance and shepherd their career, if you will, get them the right training, get them the right support in order to succeed in cybersecurity today. What sorts of things as you walk around on the show floor do you have your eye on? Is there anything you're, you're hoping to find out, anything you want to learn or, or get insights on? Well, I had two objectives attending Black Hat this year. First is I wanted to see what sort of OT or operational technology solutions are out in the market today. And there's not a lot of that out here, Dave. We are seeing... Uh, companies like Nozomi and Forescout that have these uh, asset inventory solutions, passive network solutions that are mapping OT networks out. But I'm not seeing a lot of, of the vendors here talk about the convergence of information technology and operation technology, or in essence, the ability to marry the digital with the kinetic world. For the last decade or in 15 years, they've been very segmented. If you are in IT, you're dealing with business systems. If you're an OT, you're an engineer. You're not a technologist. And I think the, the industry is just now waking up to uh, OT and critical infrastructure and figuring out how to bond those two together. At RSA this last year, we saw OT was one of the big things. Now we're here and we're, we're not seeing that. I'm also not seeing a lot of emphasis on the small and medium businesses. It seems like if you bring in less than 50 or $100 million in revenue, There's not a lot of solutions out there in the market for you. And I think that's really worrisome to those of us in the industry. All right. Well, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us and uh, safe travels home again. Thank you, Dave. We miss you. And I look forward to seeing you at one of these events again. All right. We'll see you soon. Take care.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Tim Tully. He's chief technology officer at Splunk. His team recently published a report titled The State of Dark Data, which sets out to reveal the gap between AI's potential and today's data reality. I asked Tim Tully to outline their findings when it comes to how the U.S. is approaching AI versus China. As part of the dark data report, you may have seen that sort of there's a a higher level of general acceptance in terms of sort of the role of AI in society. And I would probably tend to agree that they're a little bit ahead ahead of the U.S. in that regard. I think a lot of that, you know, largely has to do with sort of, you know, where they focus their time and where they spend their time. And and I, I think, you know, it shows up both as being perhaps more societally more acceptable, but also, I think, emphasized a bit more in school, particularly earlier. Yeah, I I think that's an interesting point. I mean, there's that whole situation where I suppose if you're a citizen in China, you may not have the same options that we have here in terms of opting out of data collection. Yeah, that's certainly true. And, you know, a lot of that sort of is societal. And then part of it is also sort of just government law, if you will. And then also sort of what is what is acceptable, I think, which goes back to the societal piece, what you see as being everyday norm, perhaps in China as a citizen is, is slightly different than sort of your level of expectations as a citizen of the U.S. or, or Europe. Can you give us some insights as to um, when someone is gathering up a bunch of data or using a data set for a project involving AI, how do they go about establishing what the standards are for that data, what's involved in there? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of like the technical piece, which is, you know, if you're doing supervised learning, you definitely want to make sure it's labeled. Right. I think what you're trying to allude to is more of what goes beyond sort of level of acceptability of sort of violating Mm -hmm. perhaps like even basic human rights, not to sound too, not to sound too like hyperbolic. You know, the way I would perceive it is you try to think about privacy and and PII, first of all. I, I sort of see data privacy as being super, super important. My background is, you know, I've been doing big data going all the way back to 2003. And then, you know, obviously over the last decade, increasingly more in AI space. But to the extent that you can, Ideally, you stay away from PII as much as possible, right? Whether it's, you know, full names or birthdays or social security numbers or, or what have you. You know, you try to either mask out the data or, or one-way hash it or, or what have you and try to anonymize it to the extent that you, that you possibly can and focus more on the models and the training of the models rather than sort of like the actual depths of, of what the data represents per se. And then perhaps come back and, and map, it in, map in the models later. But you definitely want to try to stay clear of, you know, exposing or, or even having access to that kind of, of private data as much as you can. It's a slippery slope in my mind. What about even uh, having biases in, in the data itself, of knowing ahead of time that, you know, this data may be leaning in one direction or maybe oversampled with, with one type of data than the other? I think that's a skill that a lot of AI practitioners have to learn over time. And I think increasingly hmm. the literature is doing a better job of sort of introducing the notion of, of biases 
biases up, up, up front. I, I think it's one of those things that you sort of just, you start to figure out over time. And it's not necessarily an inherent skill that people are, are, are born with. And it, it, you know, it's a tough problem. Otherwise I, you know, you probably wouldn't be asking. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's certainly hard. There's no tried and true way really to stay away from it. It's just sort of an experiential kind of thing. Now, in terms of, of staying competitive and, and trying to get an advantage over other nations around the world, what sort of uh, directions do you think we have to take? Schools and in colleges in particular need to do a much better job of focusing more on sort of the realities of machine learning being every day. Hmm. I think we've historically bolted on ML to what we've done. And I think ML needs to be thought of being pervasive in everything that people do in their computer science education and, and in the background that they establish. I mean, that's sort of the approach that I'm taking with our products right now within Splunk. Historically, a lot of companies in, in Splunk included have sort of thought of machine learning as being more of an afterthought or so, something that we sort of have bolted onto the product. And the approach that I've been taking over the last couple of years is to think of machine learning and AI as being sort of ingrained in everything that we do and, and almost automatic, right? It's not sort of a feature that, you know, we just want to put out there and market as saying, oh, it's AI powered. That should, it should mm -hmm. just be implicit. People should just understand it. it should be completely augmentative to your experience as a, as a user. And so in the same way, that has to sort of show up in the curriculum, right? Like there has to be ML in sort of all the courses that, that people take in one way or another, whether it's a security course or a networking course or, or what have you, it has to be completely ubiquitous in the same way that say like UI development is, is done within teams. One way I try to explain to people in my teams is, you know, there shouldn't necessarily be just one set of people thinking about UI in the same way that there shouldn't just be one set of people thinking about ML, right? It has to be completely pervasive. Can you give me an example of a, a situation where there would be ML applied to something where perhaps folks wouldn't have thought it would be there before? One of the things we're working on in, as an example is what we call sort of automatic source type inference. And what that is, is using ML to train models to sort of recognize data upfront it before you put it in the as you put it in the Splunk. And so instead of as a user saying, hey, this is, you know, a JSON data format that represents some firewall log, for example, Splunk should just say, hey, I see you're putting in JSON data, that's firewall log data, right? And that would be automatically done without you, you know, telling it to use ML or to have previously trained a model. It's just, it's automatic and, you know, it happens in a second and you just, you move on with your day. Right. Same, in the same way that sort of Netflix, which is sort of the, the canonical example of machine learning, right, where they recommend movies, it's sort of analogous to that in the data space where it's just part of the experience that you just sort of assume is there and works well out of the box. And then I suppose part of the, the notion here is that uh, over time, it gets better and better at making those guesses or assumptions for you so that the error rate goes yeah, down. Yeah, sure, because you, you, know, you have a feedback loop. What are your tips for businesses that are trying to get a handle on this, who, who realize that this is something they want to start integrating? What's a good place for them to get started? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I think a lot of times businesses talk about AI because they have to. Right. It's sort of like it's a marketing box that they, they sort of check and they, they talk it up and then they hype it up and then they spend all their time sort of planning and, and thinking about what they're going to do. And then they, they're sort of stuck and they're, they're not really doing anything. I think the best in my experience, what I've seen across my career is the best thing to do is to sort of just dive in head first. You look at a small problem and you sort of 
you look at how to how to build models and train it and which techniques you're going to use and then you start to roll them out in an applied way and then you look at the data and you look at the feedback loop that you create as you as you just asked about and then you sort of expand from there right instead of coming up with this sort of boil the ocean expansive ai slash ml strategy you know start with a small problem with a small set of folk and just go for that and try to optimize the hell out of that problem and then expand from there yeah sort of crawl before you yeah, walk I yeah guess. I, I think oftentimes you see a lot of companies just trying to like come up with this like grand unification theorem around ml or ai and like mm -hmm. that just that never works that's Tim Tully from Splunk. The report is titled The State of Dark Data. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.